And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Matt, how the hell are you? Doing okay. Doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We kind of talk. But sometimes when you see someone, or, or not see someone, because I'm not seeing a lot of people. Like, when I'm doing work, it's another story. But it always feels like this weird thing of just like, ah, oh, we're doing this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, I don't feel that with you, because we've done it. Uh, but uh, I guess it's one of those things where like, you know, especially with clients, uh, and, you know, part of my job is to try to form a connection with people so they feel comfortable when I'm taking their photos. And, 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 and part of me just wants to be like, yeah, but why bother? <laughs> but you can't do that, right? You can't do that. That's not my job. My job is to make them feel okay. Uh, but there are definitely points where it's just like, whatever. Like, okay, things are weird. Mm-hmm. And having that conversation repeatedly... Um, or even with like clients that are booking me for next year, it's kind of just like, all right, this is the part of the conversation where we talk about the thing. We're talking about the thing now. I'm always worried that I'm going too far. Too far in, in terms of what? Like uh, vocalizing your existential dread? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pandemic aside, I think I always felt that way with clients. <laughs> like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm opening up too much. I think that could be a, a good or a bad thing, depending, because, you know, like I want people to hire me because they they feel that connection like they know me, mm-hmm. like they like, oh, yeah, this guy will make sense on the wedding day. Yeah. And, it, I, I, you know, I think for you to sort of be that comfortable lets them know, oh, OK, we can we can let our guard down and be ourselves with this guy who we don't know during this very, like, intimate and important moment in our lives. Yeah. And I mean, you know me, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not pessimistic, but I am very much, my language is pretty dry when it comes to talking about things that are heavy. And I'm assuming that could probably be off-putting to some people. I, I'm not going to assume, I know that's off-putting to some people. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a balancing act. But I, the, the challenging thing about now, obviously, is just like not letting that side take over too, too much, where you're just like, uh, I had some client. I actually had a photo shoot yesterday, and they were new clients for a wedding for next year, and they had to reschedule from this year. But their previous photographer was unavailable, um, so they ended up with me. Yesterday was their original wedding date, uh, so that was an interesting thing to kind of broach. That kind of just like talking about having to move their actual date uh, and everything surrounding that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. just all new new stuff, new territory. Right, or not even that it's new, but, I mean, it's it's a new way to sort of go about what had been, you know, your day-to-day working life every summer for the last number of years now. Yeah. Kind of reinventing the wheel for yourself, which is difficult i imagine i'm kind of like at ease with it in some ways like this is the thing and i'm not gonna let it overwhelm me because you know obviously there's lots of other things that could that are happening right now and i think everything could be a bit much sometimes so you just kind of compartmentalize those things and uh try and enjoy uh my time with meg because there's been more of it and and time to read more and all that kind of stuff which we've talked about on the show i believe yeah you're not able to do any work, right? Are you still, are you, are you working at all? Uh, I am. Um, yeah. So this, uh, I have been at, back at work for two weeks now. I didn't know that. So for, for listeners, I have been in and out of recent episodes of the show. Um, cause my wife and I had twins in April, uh, which lined up. Well, what ended up being a silver lining, I suppose, is that because they were born sort of as the, uh, pandemic was really peaking here in the States. Um, you know, I like many, uh, folks was put on a a work furlough. So I did not, that ended up lasting for four months. Yeah. So I was home with my sons every day, um, not working remotely for, for what ended up being actually closer to four and a half months. 
you know, a uh, blessing and a curse there. Um, not a lot of new dads get to have that experience being so hands-on 24 hours a day for that long with their kids. Um, uh, the the flip side, of course, is my, my wife was struggling uh, quite a bit with, um, with postpartum uh, depression. Uh, it got pretty hairy, but, uh, you know, we had a lot of great family and friends supporting us, um, in a way that was safe. Uh, I mean, that was the other thing too, is we had to sort of vet these people to make sure that, um, everybody involved was comfortable and, and safe in being in the same house and being with the babies. But, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, two weeks ago I started working again. Uh, and it's been, it's been good to have a bit of a distraction, um, kind of refocus my energy on other things. Um, and just to break up the day. I mean, when you have two newborns, it, your day really becomes just about, um, feeding and changing. And it's, I mean, obviously that's standard, but with the two of them, it's, it's quite something. And, uh, we have them on a pretty tight schedule, um, you know, with, with a single kid, you can kind of play it by ear and maybe feed on demand, but with, especially the way the two of ours eat, if they were not eating at the same time, like we would just never not have a bottle in our hands, (laughs) (laughs) never sleep. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot, but, uh, but they're awesome. They're, they're super fun. They're, they're starting to, um, really express themselves, uh, move around. They're not crawling yet. They're, um, but they're, they're, they're pretty damn near rolling over and yeah, they're just a lot of fun to be around. And, uh, but as a result, I I have not had a whole lot of time to read or watch too many new things. Um, but certainly have done a lot of, uh, comfort binge watching in the background. I just finished watching through the last airbender again. Um, which is great. And I'm looking forward to showing it to them when they can retain things. <laughs> yeah. Just a few more months for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Along those lines, obviously sometimes it's nice to kind of, in moments like this is to, like you said, find those things that are comforting. And there's this movie that you have repeatedly, uh, talked about, I think since we started the show of something that was probably a favorite of yours from when you were younger, uh, and you kept trying to find a way for us to fit it into the show. Uh, and we finally have. Today's episode is about the movie from 1993 called Freaked, directed by uh, Tom Stern and Alex Winter. And I know you're super excited about this. So uh, why? <laughs> uh, so I actually did not know about this movie until I was in college. Um, one of my roommates did have fond memories of it from when he was a kid. And from the few people I've spoken to who have seen this movie, it seems like it was uh, maybe like an early mid-90s HBO staple. So the the movie is about Alex Winter plays this really obnoxious kind of like Hollywood it boy um, who, uh, by getting roped into endorsing this noxious chemical for a big evil conglomerate, ends up being turned into one of a uh, half a dozen or so like horrible mutant freaks at a a sideshow run by Randy Quaid. And we'll talk about it more, but like the reason that I was so excited about it is because I felt like this had a lot of things that would appeal to you in terms of, you know, really fun, practical effects. It's really bizarre sense of humor you know, I, I think a version of this would have played kind of like a like a horror movie, but it is all just a big goof. And um, you know, especially once I realized what you found so appealing about something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, <laughs> I felt like this would be a fun one to talk about. And and I also know that uh, you're you have a, a really big. Um, soft spot in your heart for the bill and ted movies uh alex winter yeah. of course mm-hmm. um plays bill and and we finally have had a reason to talk about it because bill and ted 3 is finally actually <laughs> happening yeah yeah 
It's coming out this week. It is. So yeah, so when I saw it in college, I was sort of taken aback by just how uh, absurd it all is. It feels almost like the same sort of um, constant gag machine of like a like an airplane or a naked gun, but by way of like a Beetlejuice kind of movie. Like if you mash those sensibilities up. Yeah, it just struck, struck me as super odd. Um, left an impression. I hadn't seen it in probably 10 years or so. Um, and then, uh, yeah, once, once um, Bill and Ted 3 was actually proven to be a, a reality and not just a, a pipe dream that him and Keanu talked about every so often, um, I, I sort of made it my mission to make sure you finally got around to seeing it. I think the biggest barrier to seeing it was its accessibility. It's really not, it's, it's hard to find. Uh, you, you can't stream it anywhere. Uh, there's no Blu-ray or DVD copies unless you find it used. Yeah, no, no affordable ones, certainly. Uh, yeah, so this is a movie that when they made it, um, I believe it was a Paramount movie. Anyway, the, the studio uh, was into it. Um, you know, they had the backing of, uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Fox. This is a Fox movie. Um, Winter and Stern had the studio backing, and then at some point in production, this, the head of the studio changed. The new guy didn't like it, um, and then proceeded to bury it. This was something that had a, I don't know if they actually released it, but there was a planned toy line, you know, and I think it was maybe that the toy line was sort of trying to cash in on that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles money. <laughs> it definitely has a shared aesthetic of, that kind of like early '90s, like gross kids cartoon kind of stuff. Like I don't know that the Ninja Turtles cartoon was as disgusting as the toys were, but like all the all the bad guys all had like they're all like beyond just being mutants. They were like kind of deformed looking or like really just gross and dirty and grimy. And then you see kind of that kind of stuff in like Ren and Stimpy and Rocco's Modern Life. But yeah, the studio buried it. They kind of took it on the road themselves for a little bit. They they knew they had something and they were finding kind of receptive festival and, and midnight movie audiences. Yeah, it's it's really, this is a deep cut. This is not necessarily um, a pop culture blind spot where anybody <laughs> is like, you haven't seen Freaked? I, I think it's like, a, <laughs> it's a pretty small but dedicated fan base. Um People who like it are really excited about it. After I watched it, I was kind of surprised that it didn't have a bigger cult following because it felt like the type of thing that a lot of people would like adore. Uh, and it seems like, as you said, anyone who caught it on cable when they were young, it probably left a lasting impression on them. Um, but because it's nowhere to be found, um, you know, not too, too many people know about it. I was aware of it because I remember vividly uh, being a big Bill and Ted fan. I don't know where I saw it, but there was like this making of featurette that talked about Alex Winter writing and directing this, and it showed some of the makeup. Uh, and this may have aired on MTV or one of those other kind of like I don't I don't know. I don't. I remember vividly seeing this featurette thing and being excited to see this, and then not knowing how to see it after that point. And I never grew up with HBO, so like it was one of those things where I I, I didn't have access to it. Uh, and then it just became one of those kind of white whale kind of things, which is knowing in the back of my mind that this is something that existed and that interested me, but I never really knew how to to see it. I was I was excited to finally kind of watch it. I mean, it made it made less than thirty thousand dollars when it was released, and it cost a, like roughly eleven million. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard to see how this wasn't a success. Um, I mean, and this is a weird sentence to say now in twenty twenty, but this was a movie that its origins were as a vehicle for the band The Butthole Surfers, <laughs> and I think that there was a, a studio head at any point. Who is like, yeah, let's give the butthole surfers a movie. This time frame, the early 90s, when alternative culture, um, however you want to define that, was, you know, the soup du jour of the day. And there were 
Like Butthole Surfers had a hit single, which is pretty strange to think about. And this movie feels a lot like those early 90s indie acts that were, you know, Flaming Lips and um, Folk Implosion, like these really kind of stranger bands that had no reason whatsoever to be signed to major labels. Um, we're all of a sudden being scarfed up all over the country. So you could kind of draw the line from something like that to this, where, yeah, sure, kids love this shit. Um, sign us up. And then once they see this product being like, oh, what did you, what are you giving us? What is this thing? This is so strange. And, you know, and it definitely plays to like a lot of movies built around like a sketch troupe. Um, uh, Alex Winter and Tom Stern did have a sketch show on MTV called The Idiot Box, which I'm definitely too young to have remembered. Did you ever see this or have any familiarity with it? Uh, I looked it up um, when I was doing some research for this. Uh, and it sounds vaguely familiar. I actually turned on, uh, look, looked at some clips on YouTube. And like the opening moments of the first episode is like a play on Goodfellas where these two guys are driving like a Cadillac and they hear a noise in the trunk and they open it up and it's Alex Winter and he's like, hey, welcome to the show. And then they start stabbing him and he starts describing what the show is and they keep stabbing him and it keeps going on probably longer than it needs to. Um, It was kind of funny. Uh, But I think that's what it was is they they did the idiot box for like next to no money. And because of that, they were allowed to do whatever they want. Because really, The Idiot Box is one of the first MTV shows where, like Beavis and Butthead, it also showed music videos. So that was like the key component of it. So really, an episode was 30 minutes and it only have about 7 to 10 minutes of actual sketches and everything else was music videos. Gotcha. Um, but it was one of those first sketch shows uh, on MTV uh, predates, uh, you know, Liquid Television and The State and all that stuff, which, I, you know, I didn't really... It's not something I thought about until I was doing research, but it's possible I had, I had stumbled across it because it seems, you know, it makes sense that I would be watching MTV frequently at this time because mm-hmm. I was really tapped into all those bands, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that stuff that was really had taken over MTV at that point. But yeah, so after that, they, they were kind of allowed to do their thing and, uh, and, and, and made this movie. <laughs> So let's talk about it. Like I said, um, Alex Winter plays Ricky Coogan, who um, is kind of this just shallow, um, contemptuous uh, Hollywood it boy. Um, his big, his big hit is "Ghost Dude," that ha- and his catchphrase <laughs> was "Boo Dude," which the whole nation is obsessed with. Um, and he gets hired by EES. The um, what was it? The yeah, it's EES. EES, the um, everything except shoes. Everything except right? shoes company. Yes, to to shill their new um, noxious uh, fertilizer to uh, South America. I mean, right away it sort of starts with a bunch of really strange gags. the The movie opens with a a news bulletin assuring viewers that the flying gimp has been destroyed and it's safe to leave their homes, and they never explain what that is or go back to it. As he's asking questions about whether or not the chemical is uh, really, you know, deforming people the way he has been told it is, the, there's a man who is, each time it cuts away and goes back to him, he's a, he's smaller and smaller, being replaced by actors of shorter and shorter stature until he's like this very very small person. Yeah, and there's like a in the, during the boardroom meeting too. There's a moment where they have to the board members have to vote and you see that they all have strings on their hands and they all raise their hands and vote yes in unison. You could, it's all connected to a lever that the, the um, William Sadler who plays the board of directors has the lever and he's pulling it to raise their hands all at once. Yeah. They're all a bunch of ancient um, near death white guys. Yeah. I I mean, like I mentioned earlier, kind of like an airplane, it, it really just, throws gags pretty relentlessly. Um, I don't know that there's a line of dialogue that's not necessarily a joke. So that when they don't work, there's always one right on its heels to sort of fill that space. It, there's definitely a hit to miss ratio on this. Oh, sure. 
for everyone that's great there's a couple of clunkers and there's mm -hmm. a few references to things that don't work at all like pop culture references but like you said it's so fast-paced that it doesn't really matter the thing that works that worked for me was that it had this joyous go for broke attitude where it was willing to try and do anything and it did feel like the lunatics had taken over the asylum in a lot of ways like they were given all this money and they used it to just do whatever they wanted and they tried anything and everything and i think that kind of that enthusiasm comes across in the whole movie so even when something isn't quite right or something feels a bit amateurish you're still like no it's it's that's charming yeah i mean they made a movie that could have been really cynical i mean it is fairly cynical in terms of its views on like big corporations and the entertainment industry but um it's having such a good time doing it uh and it never feels preachy because i think at the end of the day what's most important to them is the joke or like the gross out gag um so yeah so when alex winter gets to south america with uh his uh friend ernie who is uh, another just obnoxious repugnant person <laughs> um <laughs> they um they get caught up with uh, a woman named Julie, who is uh, an environmentalist protesting the corporation's use of this chemical, and they find themselves uh, sidetracked to uh, a freak show run by Elijah Skuggs, played by Randy Quaid, who has never been better. <laughs> <laughs> he has this really great, awful tan and really yeah. long, kind of like grayish hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, he looks ridiculous. It's really funny. Yeah, yeah. So he runs this um, freak show where he uses the chemical that Alex Winter is there to promote to mutate people into just all sorts of disgusting um, cartoon monsters. Um, well, let's run down the freaks quickly because <laughs> in terms of their presentation, they run the gamut of like, um, you know, really uh, elaborate and cool to zero effort, but just as <laughs> hilarious. So there's, um, you know, there's a, a, a guy who was um, a scientist studying worms who was turned into a giant worm. Um, Bobcat Goldthwait plays Sockhead, who was a guy on a fishing trip who just has his head mutated into what you think at first is a sock puppet, and then you realize his head was mutated into a hand, and he just <laughs> puts a sock puppet on himself. <laughs> That was that was probably my favorite gag of the whole movie when the sock gets removed and it's just a hand and everyone's disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's just like shamed that he's a hand mm -hmm. and that he had to cover it up with the sock. He was probably my favorite of the freaks. <laughs> um there was um <laughs> uh the um the human flame who is just a guy who's <laughs> just constantly farting um, like a four foot <laughs> flame out of his butt. Um, uh -huh. and, uh, then the frog man, which is just a scuba diver who speaks French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then Mr. T plays the bearded lady. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which was interesting because, uh, I know this is 93. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to explain, but uh, you know, it seems like Mr. T showed up because he was converted by um, Randy Quaid as well. And really, it just switched his gender. But he was just like, or she was just like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be. And mm -hmm. I thought that was really, um, and everyone accepted it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really forward thinking for a movie from 1993. Like, no one like was like, oh, there's something wrong with this. It was just kind of like, no, I was always supposed to be a woman. And now I'm this woman that looks like Mr. T. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure um, it's probably still a little problematic, but the joke is never sure. on the character necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is, um, you know, there is um, a, a sort of a pinhead character, which is a sort of a, a reference to Freaks, you know, the movie from the 30s. And that's a tricky one to to laugh at it's kind of mean-spirited a little bit you know there's no real joke there 
No, no. She's just kind of screaming for most of it, and everyone's kind of like shocked by her. Yeah. Uh, and, and Keanu Reeves um, is uncredited as... Um, uh, Ortiz. Ortiz the dog boy. Ortiz the dog boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming he did it, uh, you know, because it was his, his buddy, Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he, he he's... He's pretty good in it, but he also does kind of like a, a pretty pretty retrograde uh, Spanish accent. So his friend Ernie and Julie, the environmental the environmentalists, so they meet up with um, Ernie and Julie have a very confrontational relationship where Ernie is uh, misogynistic and just a giant pig and generally unpleasant to be around. Um, so they are mutated by being fused together. Um, is sort of forced to be much closer to one another than either of them would prefer to be. Um, there, there's a lot of sticky humor with the two of them, kind of like like slapsticky kind of violent humor, humor where they're kind of hitting each other the whole time, uh, or or commenting on like gender roles and stuff like that. And a lot of that didn't necessarily play for me, um, but you know, again, like they're so brief and quick that it kind of moves on to the next joke. Sure, and every time he says something pig-headed, you can trust that she'll punch him in the face, which is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At yeah, least there's yeah. that. Oh, and we also forgot uh, when they were all describing how they became uh, the freaks. <laughs> Probably the best one is they just show this close-up of a wrench, and then it flashes back, and they used to be a hammer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're all and like, "Oh, that's the rough." Toxic chemicals turned it to a wrench, and everyone's like, "That's so heartbreaking. That's so sad." <laughs> uh, I mean, that whole sequence is really good because the uh, the guy who's turned into the worm is very articulate and gives his story, and then Bobcat is like, "I just came as a tourist, and then I turned him into a sock." Yeah, I'm not very good <laughs> at telling stories. <laughs> uh, yeah, Randy Quaid has a great line when he's uh, sort of speaks to his artistic ethos when he's mutating Alex Winter, and it's something to the effect of, um, "Just as Michelangelo stared into the marble and saw David, I can look at a guy like Kevin Costner and see a peach grub who farts the blue Danube." <laughs> it's just such a like a well-worded bit of nonsense and there's a lot of really like borderline overwritten kind of lines in this um there's a lot of different types of humor at play whether it's slapstick or gross out or just ab- absurdity and puns there's a character who or uh, randy quaid speaks to on the phone codenamed a laughing man and all you ever hear is cackling to the point of like when he spells something, he just does a bunch of short, brief, different laughs to represent different letters. And Randy Quaid knows exactly what he's saying. And that's the joke. There's a great moment when they're try where Alex Winter tries to escape and he convinces the milkman to come and uh, go into this outhouse where he's basically living in and he escapes and he's dressed up as the milkman. Um, and then uh, he gets attacked by two Rasta eyeballs. So there's these giant <laughs> Rastafarian eyeballs, and they both have machine guns. But the good bit is that when he escapes them, the rest of the freaks are all dressed up as milkmen <laughs> to escape as well. They all have the same plan. And then it cuts to Randy Quaid at one point. He's like, wow, a, those milkmen are fighting. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah there's, there's a lot of milkmen on that route must be why they're fighting all the time <laughs> yeah there's also a framing device for the whole movie uh it's alex winter uh telling his story on like a talk show that's hosted by brooke shields her character's name is sky daily uh, they make like bad jokes to like escape a return to the blue lagoon and stuff like that when alex winter uh mutates he becomes like this beast boy so in the framing device, he's always like in silhouette. Uh, and so at the beginning, they say like, oh, when people think of you, when kids hear your name, they, they, they scream in terror. And then a few seconds later, she says his name. And then you hear the kids in the background going, ah! but uh, he's, he's like in darkness. So and ostensibly while you're watching the movie, you think it's because you can't, they don't want to show what he looks like because he's so hideous. 
but by the end of the movie, they turn on a light and they realize that the light was just broken for the whole duration of the program. Yeah, and so you see the silhouette of him in shadow and you see all like the sort of like the, the humps and the deformed shape of his head and all these like gnarly hairs sticking out. And as when you see him as the Beast Boy, you're like, oh yeah, that's what he looks like in the dark. But when the lights come on, he's just sitting in front of a, a cactus that's really poorly placed behind him to sort of give that extra texture to, to look like his mutant form. There's so many little background gags and like, like everything is a gag. Like some of the music is gag related and everything is just like, like go for broke everything in the kitchen sink kind of approach to it and it fit in it felt to me too like it should be a bigger artifact of 90s alternative culture because it had everything like that sort of anti-corporate um you know the alternative kids versus corporate culture how corporations exploit their workers um had the butthole surfers like you had mentioned and um bobcat Goldthwait. so like mm-hmm. all these like references to alternative comedy and, and music um and it felt like this sort of apotheosis of this moment in time like this is like you know the the mosquito trapped in ember of this very specific moment it very it felt like a movie from the early 90s and i don't mean that in a bad way necessarily either because sometimes it's nice to have like this almost like perfect representation of this moment Absolutely. And like I said, uh, you know, I sort of see the the DNA, not necessarily of this specific movie, but, you know, um, of whatever was in the air in things like, you know, like you mentioned Beavis and Butthead, um, the the early um, early wave of Nicktoons. You know, there's also that sort of smarmy, um, ironic embrace of like mid-century kitsch. Um, you know, like Randy Quaid's character lives in a like a really like square looking home that looks right out of the Brady Bunch or something. Um, some of the creature designs look like like Big Daddy Roth cartoons. You know what I mean? Uh, like Ratfink. Yeah. He looks kind of like Ratfink, uh, minus yeah. the, the mouse ears. Yeah, it, it really. I, I would agree. It definitely feels of its time. Um, and I think the stuff that didn't age well is relatively minor compared to the stuff that still really, really works. Um, especially, you know, I think if if this movie were done any less expensive than it was, um, it would have looked bad. Whereas it looks gross on purpose. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, the creature effects are so fun. And even like, even like I like I mentioned, like some of like two of the characters are like barely aren't mutated at all, but like they frame a sort of freak personality around it. Um, there's one guy, Nosy, who just has a giant nose for a head, and like nobody likes him, and that's the running joke is that everybody hates Nosy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's just a joy to look at, and I, I mean, as much of a joy as something so disgusting can be. Uh, that's another big. Uh, early 90s late 80s affectation that was really popular you saw it in toys from like garbage pail kids and and um uh, what what were those kind of like balls for like playing catch but you kind of they were like faces and you'd squeeze them and then like stuff would come out of their noses and stuff yeah. like that you yeah. know what i'm talking about i know what you're talking about everything was disgusting everything yeah was it gross. was all gross out yeah everything was uh and it was accepted because like Gar- kid, young kids like garbage pail kids. It was just kind of like, oh, we like, we like snot and boogers and vomit and mucus. Yeah, I mean this this is a like a live action ninety minute Ren and Stimpy close up. Do you remember? Yeah, those like the really gnarly paintings that showed all like the crust and the hair and like just the scabs. It, it when Alex Winter gets turned into the they call was he they call him like Beast Boy, right? And he's only half done for most of the movie. Like half of him is this disgusting rat fink beast boy. And then the other half is still his human self. Yeah. But he's got like open kind of like, like sores that just kind of spurt out like Mm -hmm. mucus when he's like, and it frames it. So, so purposefully like, like the camera turns and like pushes in on him. It's really low and super wide to distort him and make him look even gnarlier 
and then like the lightning flashes and then you see like pus just breaking out like streaming out of his forehead and everyone else is kind of freaked out by him it's funny because like he has like probably the most to do um as far as uh, line delivery and you could tell it was probably a burden for him because it's like the way the half his half of his face is kind of like like it's like a larger mouth and it's like weird and it's connected to him so you could tell it was probably really difficult for him to speak and articulate and and have the words make sense it it sounds weird when he talks it's really funny it sounds like he's talking with his mouth perpetually open he can't really quite uh it's almost like a like a like a bad ventriloquist act not bad, but like, you know, the, the limitations of the makeup and his ability to actually articulate and get his mouth around words is prevalent. But also, you know, he's this horrible, disgusting monster who probably wouldn't be too well-spoken anyway. One of the first times he does, like, he performs in the freak show, he, you know, gets a pep talk about, you know, still being himself and being the actor. And he does a Shakespearean monologue and... This feels very much like a Monty Python gag where it cuts to like a, a stuffy professor who's explaining uh, the origins of it. And he's like, I'm going to present uh, subtitles for the cultural, culturally illiterate. And he goes on and on for a number of lines. And then the subtitles finally shows up and it says, I'm ugly. And then it's another five or six lines and the subtitle shows up and says, I never get laid. And like <laughs> that, that like simplification of, of uh, you know, Shakespeare is so so great because like yeah that's that's what it is let's let's not kid ourselves it, it, and it it beats um up to to the squirrel punchline by having uh, uh keanu as the dog boy he's 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 about to fight alex winter's character and then he gets distra- distracted by a squirrel and runs off yeah there are a lot of great um like dog trait bits with that character like when you first meet him and he comes in um and he's standing upright, uh, talking to them. And then like this obviously phony leg comes up to scratch his ear. It almost looks like when, um, uh, like in any of the sketches with Triumph, the insult comic dog yeah. and Conan, yeah. where like there's the puppet and then there's like the absurdly long paw prop that <laughs> yeah. comes out when he needs to touch something. Um, I love that, that deliberate lack of any pretense. We're like, they're like, no, it's, it's funnier to just not just have a like a bad prop or a phony looking bit of costuming, but like to really embrace it and have it be so absurdly bad that in and of itself becomes like a quick joke that we don't need to comment on. It just is what it is. That's like the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about uh, Stewie the troll, which is the the little kid who is obsessed with Ricky and kind of follows him around. Um, and he just looks like this really like over the top, again, kind of like a 50s, 60s nerdy character. He's got the thick glasses and the buck teeth, but he's got these big giant ears uh, that can never seem to shake him. I mean, the kid is thrown out of an airplane <laughs> um, <laughs> just and keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. And then he eventually gets mutated as well. And he turns into this giant kind of, it's a, it's just a really cool puppet. It's huge. Um, towers over the rest of them. Uh, and that's when Alex Winter also kind of mutates fully. Uh, and they kind of have a showdown, which is pretty fun to watch. It kind of reminds me of um, the big Nazo puppets that are in Rhode Island. Yes. Yeah, I thought that, especially when the when I and I, the, the two Rastafarian eyeballs show up, which is another great, gag is that their names are i and i it's cool the, the the pupils look really neat the way they kind of shift and uh it's hard to describe yeah because their pupils are their mouths but they they move in like this really like fluid way um it's almost like a like a, a lava lamp it's weird mm-hmm. yeah it's really cool as the movie progresses we learn that the big corporation E.E.S. is in cahoots with uh, Randy Quaid's character. Uh, and he's been, they've been hooking him up with all the stuff to mutate people. You kind of know from the beginning what's going to happen as far as Alex Winter's character is going to, I guess, turn into a nice guy. But I mean, he's just still sort of kind of 
I wouldn't say he's a dick at the end, but he's just like, whatever, you know, like this yeah, happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily like this this heartwarming arc that he goes through or anything like that. It's just poking fun at everything. And I think they mostly just want to kind of make fun of that kind of actor anyway. That's sort of full of themselves and uh, maybe had success when they were too young, which is probably something he experienced because uh, he's been acting since he was, I think he was like five or seven years old. He started acting. Uh, I think he's pre- he's pretty good in it. I mean, like when he's not a freak, when he's not the Beast Boy, the performance is very big. It's very broad. Like he leans into everything. And I think everyone does. And that's by design. Like they want this to be like a a cartoon, live action cartoon in a lot of ways. Yeah, he really, um, just that that smug shittiness, he really leans into it. Even just like, just this big, like, phony grin on his face the whole time he's just really just you know especially compared to seeing him in bill and ted where you know he's kind of dopey but he's they're both so lovable and you know like positive people for him to just be this complete slime ball is a lot of fun in the big climactic scene so the evil corporation is called everything except shoes and the board gets mutated and fused together into a giant disgusting living shoe um randy quaid is thrown into the vat and emerges looking just like brooke shields character and then even within the framing device we learned that he (laughs) it's been him the whole time it does like pulls that gag on like horror movies where the villain keeps coming back Mm -hmm. yeah she gets shot like two or three times and she keeps coming back yeah yeah and then even lunges at them in a freeze frame like friday the 13th yeah, yeah, that's how it ends. <laughs> so, like, you can tell they just like, yeah, we're not going to take anything seriously whatsoever. No. But we there's also that moment where Alex Winter sneaks into Randy Quaid's lab to what is he trying to steal? Randy Quaid is going to finish transforming him into a full Beast Boy and program him to be evil, so he fights and kills the other freaks. Um, they go into there's an elaborate plot involving. Um, cowboy who is a guy who had been mutated into a cow and like produces milk which is played by john hawks yeah that young john hawks yeah yeah long story short they're they're just gonna swap out the evil chemicals for the good one so that when he turns into the full beast boy he's a good beast boy and can save the freaks instead of killing the freaks but then when he gets back he's like oh i didn't pull it off and they're all kind of bummed and he's like but i got these macaroons and everyone's like yeah and they're all super excited that he's got macaroons yeah yeah. and it turns out the macaroons are actually um the thing that turns them back into normal yeah um i was i was a little disappointed with that i thought I, i was hopeful that at the end that they would remain freaks and that that was kind of not the point of it but just like hey whatever we're freaks it's cool sure um but at the end they're all normal people except for the worm, because he doesn't like coconut. Because he doesn't like coconut. That's in the macaroons. <laughs> um, you seem really excited to talk about this. And there's that through line of all these things that were sort of formidable for you uh, and with this and Doom and um, Sam and Max Hit the Road and maybe to a lesser extent Neuromancer, where you're really excited to show these things. And and I can almost see a through line between all those as well. They're sort of they're accessible but really strange on the margins and don't necessarily have massive audiences but are except for maybe doom but are really influential uh not just for you personally but like it you know i and this movie obviously isn't influential but i do think this movie kind of fits in with them as far as its tone and its irreverent sense of self uh so it was interesting to me because tr- connecting all those pieces together uh and it, that was exciting for me in a lot of ways too of just kind of watching this and seeing because i know you've been so excited to talk about this and so part of that and i think the other times on the show you've been really really excited was for those other things that you've introduced to me not to say that not to say that you haven't really enjoyed some of the things that we've both discovered together or things that i've shown to you but those things that where you're like it almost feels like this is this is a part of me, you know? Uh, and it's kind of cool to see all those things sort of interconnect in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Sam and Max because I definitely see how that and Freaked 
share a lot of the same comedic sensibilities and sort of um, worldview. Um, and even the other ones too. I mean, Doom, the sort of... It's gleeful violence. Philo- yeah, the yeah. driving philosophy there was like, oh, let's just make something that's fucking cool and gross. And like a lot of the influences are similar. Um, I mean, you can, you know, I think... Um, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a great example of something you were really excited to share with me. Um, and I, I can see that, you know, something like that or an evil dead, th- those being a, a big well of inspiration for this, certainly in terms of, uh, maybe the, the over the top, if not giddy approach to violence and, and sort of grotesquery and gore. Yeah. This, this definitely does not have a, significant cultural impact but i think it is um as you mentioned a really great time capsule of its time and place and i think i think earlier in the year maybe right before things closed down i I think there was a recent screening of it on 35 millimeter in boston Mm -hmm. i think the coolidge corner did a midnight screening of it bobcat may have even been there Um, yeah he was yeah uh, so yeah, it's got a, a bizarre little life. Um, I did read in one interview with, um, Tom Stern and, and Alex Winter that now that technically Disney owns it, I think they, they have tried to contact somebody about maybe finally getting it, um, uh, a cleaned up print. You know, one reason that they say it's not on a Netflix or whatever is because there's no good HD transfer of it. And like it looks like shit so which is a bummer because like um it looks good yeah you know, it like, looks really good uh, like the transfer is bad but um it, it's a terrific looking movie it has a lot of those kind of qualities of you know that the fun house kind of lighting uh and there's like a, a lot of attention to detail for the sets which are pretty uh, elaborate where the freak show it takes place uh all the circus kind of sets, the giant, almost like paper mache looking Randy Quaid head that kind of oh, moves yeah. around. The outhouse that is kind of like the TARDIS from Doctor Who or yeah. you think he's going to just... on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> and he... One of these days I got to put a shitter in there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's well lit. It, uh, it, it, it looks cool. It makes, like I said earlier, um, it uses a lot of wide angle lenses, usually kind of um, pointing upwards a lot of close-ups to make things look even more exaggerated and weird. A lot of great lighting and, and um, yeah, good gross-out effects and makeup and stuff. So it's it's sad that this doesn't have a, not a wide, a, you know, I don't, I can't imagine this having a big audience. But I do, like I said, I think those people that would discover it would love and cherish this movie if, if, if only it was a little more accessible. Yeah, I, I think there's absolutely a larger audience for it. And it's just, you know, um, a sad reality of how it was sort of abandoned by its studio 20 years ago. Um, you know, it speaks to the larger problem of Disney owning everything now. I mean, this is sort of perfect for like a shout factory or shutter to maybe clean up and release. But, you know, um, if they're not going to, do screenings of like Die Hard and Aliens. I can't imagine they're gonna, <laughs> you know, gonna do anything with with you know these hidden gems that they've been. Now they're just yeah. gonna be locked away forever. Which, um, you know, I was thinking that the other day how they do literally have the ability to just continue to print money in perpetuity. I mean, if they released a a grown ups version of Disney Plus with all like the cool shit from Fox that they're never gonna do anything with, you know. People would, people would subscribe to that. I mean, there, there's this library of content that is now, you know, being forever gatekept from people and gatekept. Uh, and recently, they talked about, um, right? Was it Disney saying that they're abandoning 4K physical releases? The initial story was that they were doing that for older stuff. So, like, if they were going to release the latest Marvel or Star Wars, whatever, they would still do those in 4K, but older stuff, they were not. Um, Disney, they they released a statement saying that that is not the case, but it's hard to say. Uh, you kind of have to take them at their word because they're in control, you know? Um, so, we'll, we'll see. I'm hopeful, as someone who's um, a collector of physical media, I'm hopeful that 
that they continue to put stuff out. But, um, you know, obviously we'll, we'll see. Uh, but it is frustrating that like it's now just a few companies that kind of own everything. There are a lot of people who kind of laugh at the idea that, oh, you still buy Blu-rays. And if I buy especially a box set of something, then I have that and I will always have it. And I'm not at the mercy of whichever company decides they want people to have access to it. Because there are certain things like this movie, like if there's no physical release, this movie's gone. And the only way that we could actually watch something like this is to pirate it. If companies aren't willing to put out the movies, then that and that if, if that's the only way to access a movie, then yeah, that's how you have to get it. Yeah, it's um, it is frustrating because um, you know for every big blockbuster that a company like Disney is sitting on and not releasing, there are dozens of these little oddities that already have probably a smaller audience than they deserve. Uh, but they're never, you know, no one else is going to find them. So we're uh, we're out here doing the doing the, the work, Lord's get, work, getting the word out, <laughs> getting our um, hands dirty. <laughs> yeah, um, listeners, if I sound a little stupid today, it's uh, it's merely <laughs> new new parent exhaustion. Um, <laughs> no, you sound you sound just as good as usual. Oh, great. That's damning praise if ever I heard any. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional on my yeah. part. <laughs> I think I know what the answer is, but I take it you enjoyed this? I did, yeah. I was glad I saw it. Uh, I do think this is a movie that if I saw it when it came out, or if I had caught it on HBO when I was a kid, then it would be something that I would be obsessed with. One of those movies where every line was memorized. Now, I'm. I think I'm more appreciative of it and kind of won over by its charms and maybe then more than I actually loved it. But uh, I did like it, yeah. And I was glad that I was finally able to watch it because I know that every time it's brought up, we're like, we have to do Freaked. We have to do Freaked. One thing we didn't talk about is the the excellent title sequence. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. It's sort of like a mixture of... It's, it's like almost has like a strobic effect with you know, hand-drawn kind of titles with a mixture of sort of like stop-motion kind of physical things, whether it's kind of like goop and all sorts of stuff like that. And it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely, um, in in terms of, you know, speaking to its sort of personality and DNA of its time, like there is very much like a a psychedelic... super weird kind of peewee's playhouse feel to a lot of this stuff and and this fe- the the title sequence feels like it would have been uh like an animated sequence in that show um and it's got a fantastic theme song by blind idiot god with lyrics sung by uh, uh henry rollins mm-hmm. yeah the song is pretty cool it's really cool and really the combination of the music and the visuals in that title sequence pretty much sum up what you're getting into. I, um, I was talking to, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Brian, who did our, our logo and I've been proselytizing freaked as much as to him as I have been to you. And he said, yeah, I watched the title sequence on YouTube and knew right away it was something my girlfriend was not going to want to (laughs) watch. Yeah. It, it's a fast one. It's only an hour and 20 minutes, though. And, it you know, it goes by quickly. And uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome, I'll say that. No, it definitely doesn't. I definitely think this is something that could... Uh, a little goes a long way. Uh, because it is just... It's dialed to 11 the whole time. But it's super charming. Uh, and like we said up front, I'm just a... Uh, I have such a soft spot for Bill and Ted. So... Uh, and I love um, Keanu and Alex. I just... I think seeing them remain friends since being cast in the original Bill and Ted uh, and to constantly kind of check in on each other and to see interviews with them now is just so heartening (laughs) just to see like this sort of like, like two good people in this, in this industry where you hear so many awful stories. Uh, I think that's been so great and I'm so excited for the new Bill and Ted um, and part of that kind of fueled my 
excitement for watching this too because it almost felt like a piece of that puzzle. Sure. Because Alex Winter has continued to direct, but he does documentaries now. Uh, and they're pretty good. I don't know if you've seen any of them. He recently did one on child actors, uh, which is on HBO. Oh, nice. It's pretty good. And he talks to the kid that played Elliot in E.T. Okay. Uh, and Evan Rachel Henry, Wood. Henry Thomas? Yeah, and Evan Rachel Wood. And um, there's a number of people. The girl that played Matilda. Oh, uh, yes. I can't remember her name. And uh, Wesley Crusher. <laughs> you know, a lot of people that were kind of his age. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, he doesn't insert himself into it. But it's a, it's a, it's a pretty decent uh, uh, documentary. So, And I know he's done a few. He did one on the Panama Papers, which is on Hulu, which I think is supposed to be pretty good. Nice. Uh, yeah. And Keanu, uh, I don't know what happened to that guy. but um, <laughs> Good one. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a Keanu Reeves t-shirt, so, uh, you know, we won't get into it. <laughs> so from here, any recommendations? I want to recommend uh, a movie that I just watched recently. Uh, and it's pretty different in tone, although it is a comedy. Um, it's called A Chinese Ghost Story. Uh, came out in 1987 by its director, uh, Ching Su Tung, S-I-U-T-U-N-G. Uh, and it's sort of this unholy mix of like wire foo movies and Evil Dead. I think we had mentioned this on our Jackie Chan episode, but Police Story was sort of in a response to movies like this, where I think a lot of the the culture at the time were really obsessed with these sort of fantastical, over-the-top, um, supernatural stories. And this is really about this philosopher that runs into this girl uh, who only shows up at night because, surprise, she's a ghost. Um, and he, to simplify things, he, he's trying to rescue her, essentially. It has some amazing, amazing gross-out uh, monsters and, and gags in this. There's this tongue creature, which has, it's so cool. You have to see it. Um, and they do a lot of this great practical effect where you know they'll have like these tentacles or a tongue and you could tell what they did is they wrapped it around the person and then pulled it off and then reversed it to make it look like it wraps around the person nice i love that kind of stuff yeah oh it's filled with it it really feels like they watched evil dead and we're just like we could do that too um and but beyond that there's a lot of great kind of wire foo fighting stuff um great use of like long flowing robes and using like insert shots almost abstractly of kind of like flowing robes and hair and with wind machines and stuff. It's, it's pretty terrific. Um, I think it's currently up on Amazon prime. Uh, so if you have that, it's, it's worth a watch. It's, it's really fun, but it, it made me think of freaked primarily because there's got a lot of great gross out kind of like practical monster effects. Nice. Yeah. What about you? Uh, this is a recommendation kind of for myself, but for others as well. Um, I've always enjoyed listening to the Butthole Surfers. I think I'm going to take a little <laughs> more of a, a dive into that. Um, so th- this is a weird recommendation because I can't really speak to the quality of it. But this is one of those movies that, like people who discovered Freaked on cable, um, I remember vividly being home uh, sick one day from school uh, and seeing Reckless Kelly on HBO, which was a Yahoo Serious movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So it's an Australian movie um, where he he plays like the descendant of, or or just sort of like a modern version of Ned Kelly, which is kind of an Australian folk hero. Uh, I remember him like wearing armor made out of garbage cans. I remember him shooting a fly. Uh, I think he robs banks to save Tasmania. Um, I don't know that it's a very good movie, but it's one of those sort of early 90s cable staples that you you kind of end up seeing by accident. So um, if that rings a bell to anybody, uh, I know I want to try to seek it out just to... Because I know I only saw the once, but it left such an impression. And and that can either be because um, I liked it and just forgot the details or because it was on often enough that I kept seeing the same images over and over again. Uh, and Hugo Weaving is in it, so <laughs> why not? Wow, that sounds so weird. It sounds really weird. And there's that great 
Simpsons gag where Lisa looks at a movie theater marquee and it says Yahoo Serious Film Festival. And she says, I know all those words, but I don't know what they're doing together. (laughs) So that's it. Thanks for sharing this movie with me. Yeah. Thanks for indulging me here. (laughs) Always. Always. That's the point of the show, right? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. We'll see you next time. All right, I guess that wraps up another thrilling tale of what did we miss? Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, Stitcher Premium, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And thanks, as always, to What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, where we record our episodes. If you want to learn more about them, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at What Cheer Club and visit their website at whatcheerclub.org.